Psychologically tall. I'm talking about ethics. You you patented it, then packaged it, slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now sell it. You're gonna sell it. Well, same. <laughs> I'm Woody. Howdy, howdy, howdy. They'll soon be back and in greater numbers. Any friend of Olive's is a friend of our daughter. I am really close on this one. Really, really close. Let's watch my favorite part again, shall we? Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Amanda. And you're listening to Scenes from a Marriage, a movie podcast in which we as a married couple watch movies and talk about them. Sometimes those movies are (laughs) classic movies. Sometimes those movies are modern movies. Last episode, which has been quite a a while. Yes, a long time. Getting back into it now. Yeah, shaking the dust off. (laughs) We apologize both to you and to ourselves, but it has been a... Very crazy couple of weeks. And by couple, I mean like six or seven weeks. Mm. I was saying just the other day, and I won't go on about this because you're here to hear about the movies and not about our lives, but it seems like the the lull that we were all in during the pandemic has just like kind of flattened out. Like we're like, <laughs> like suddenly it's back. Like life is back the way Full that it force, was. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know kind of how it happened. I just didn't realize it until this week. It's then, too much. It's too much. It's a lot. There's a lot of things. Everything is back. So we're going to make some choices. Mm-hmm. And until this point, the podcast has gotten a little bit tossed to the side. But because we, we watched the movie for this week's podcast on the day of the the premiere of The Bachelorette, for all of you who watched The Bachelorette, I couldn't watch it because we were watching the movie. Did you say it already? No, you didn't. At the Rialto. Yes. So, yeah, it was, it was what? I think the 7th of June. It's been that long. Mm-hmm. I trust that our recollections will be sufficient to uh, chat about this. But, yes, it was playing at the Rialto here in Raleigh, and the movie is Citizen Kane. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper? I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charge, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof that this armada's off the Jersey Hello, coast. Hello, Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Can Kane. you prove it isn't? This just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just borrow How do you do, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. That's <laughs> fine, Mr. King. Yes, I rather liked myself. So, right away. I right came away. to see you yes, about this Mr. campaign Thatcher. of yours. This Inquirer campaign against the public transit company. Mr. Thatcher, do you know anything we could use against them? Still the college boy, aren't you? Oh, no, Mr. Thatcher. I was expelled from college. A lot of colleges. You remember. I remember. Charles, I think I should remind you of a fact that you seem to have forgotten. Yes, That you are yourself one of the largest individual stockholders in the public transit company. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. 
As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I'll let you in on another little secret, Mr. Thatcher. I think I'm the man to do it, you see. I have money and property. If I don't look after the interests of the underprivileged, maybe somebody else will. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, and that yes. Would money be too and property. Bad. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, tell me... Honestly, my boy, don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. When I saw this was playing on the Rialto, they've been doing a lot of the repertory showings, and we've done a couple of them on the podcast, such as Breakfast at Tiffany's. I was excited to go see it first because, you know, who knows when you might get the chance to see a classic this big on the big screen. Because I'd never seen Kane on the, uh, you know, in the theater. And second, and I'd because, never seen it at all. Exactly. Hmm. And so that we kind of thought of this podcast, I think part of the impetus behind it was I'm, you know, kind of introducing you to some of the classic cinema that. I consumed over the past 10 years or so, kind of when I was getting into movies and giving myself an education in, in classic movies. So since we've been together, we have watched our fair share of things like Night of the Hunter, mm-hmm. Cape Fear, All About Eve, and others. A lot of these you have enjoyed. I remember you even... Oh, picked. yeah. I liked All About Eve. And Cape Fear is the one with the alligator, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I like that one. That was a good one. All About Eve made your pick for one of the five best new movies you watched last year. Yeah, that was a really good one. And uh, especially after always hearing the song, Betty Davis Eyes, I was like, I need to see a movie with Betty Davis. And so it, it checked that box for me. It was good. And we still have to get around to Now Voyager one of these days. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So because of all that, it, this was a great opportunity for us to go straight for what is, by all accounts, the most towering classic of them all. That's Kane. And plus, you recently watched Mank, the David Fincher film about the writing of Citizen Kane, which certainly has reignited interest from a new generation of film buffs in going back and watching Citizen Kane. Right. I, I kind of wish that I'd watched Citizen Kane first, but... It was, it was still good. It would to make have more that. sense, but. <laughs> yeah. And after watching it, I was like, mm, yeah, this would have been better, but it's still good that we watched that. What can you say about Citizen Kane? Not only has everything been said, but all the jokes about how everything has already been said have also been said. The problem is that Kane, like the Towers of Xanadu in the film's opening, rising dark and foreboding above a gate which reads, no trespassing, invariably falls victim to its own reputation as a long-standing synonym for greatest movie of all time. 
It consistently made the top of the sight and sound poll of the greatest movies ever made, which is arguably the most prestigious list of its kind, until it was recently supplanted by Hitchcock's Vertigo, which had the number one slot in the most recent version of the list. That's one of your favorite movies, right? It is. Uh I like that one, too. It poses a challenge to each generation of cinephiles who have to come to Citizen Kane and try to see it both for its place in cinema history, but also for what its more obvious merits might be. So if you look at the sight and sound list, it's not necessarily a very accessible collection of movies. They skew old, they skew silent. You've got Sunrise, you've got The Passion of Joan of Arc. They skew non-narrative. You've got Man with a Movie Camera, Experimental. You've got Persona, Eight and a Half. There's a couple of Ozu films on there, which are very slow. You've got Seven Samurai, which is like almost four hours long. So these are a lot of movies that kind of maybe pose challenges to the average movie viewer as trying to come to them and see what it is that they offer. Now, some of these movies were instrumental in the creation or the popularization of parts of the film vocabulary that we now take for granted. For example, we have Battleship Potemkin, which was famous for its montage and the Soviet film fathers that did montage. So it is the task of the film student, the journalist, to dig into the history of Citizen Kane and movies like it and understand their significance. So I think it's from this perspective that a lot of people come to Kane as though it is homework, right? It's something that you have to check off your list, but it's not really something that you're expecting to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we say, oh, we think it was important in its day. It doesn't really necessarily hold resonance for us as modern moviegoers. You can perhaps imagine what my response to that is going to be. But before we go on, I want to hear your experience coming to this from the first time. What, if any, preconceived notions did you have before watching this movie? Was it any of the baggage that I just described? What did you think that you were going to see? Honestly, I hadn't I hadn't known anything about the movie before watching Mank. I feel like (laughs) the only reason I knew what Citizen Kane was, and this is going to be embarrassing, but you know our blockbuster game? I do. (laughs) So our blockbuster game has uh, a bunch of movies and you have to, you know, either act them out or I don't know, do a lot of different things. Anyway, you, you have to either say one word to get people to recognize it do a quote from the movie or do a like a straight up. So basically like fishbowl, but you know, the game. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Everything comes back to fishbowl. It basically is fishbowl except for with movies. But that was one of the movies and I was always like, what is this? That and Blade Runner. It always goes to those two. And I have not seen Blade Runner. Anyway. That's, gonna, that's been on our list from the beginning. So maybe, maybe we need to days. check that one off. We need to do that. But I only knew from Mank that this was going to be about a really wealthy man. And I didn't know how he came to be wealthy or anything like that, but I knew that he had a big mansion with like animals in it. And I wasn't even sure. Yeah. Like who exactly it was about, but I, but then it was like the young girl or the movie star who she was married to or whatever. Anyway. Well, the one who was played by Amanda Save Fred in the yes, movie? Yes, yes. So I I really didn't know a whole lot about it. And I don't know why I hadn't. Maybe because I wasn't much of a cinephile like you. Like I say, I think a lot of people who are interested in movies maybe 
have a kind of mental barrier coming to this to think, oh, you know, I have to quote unquote get this. I have, you know, as there's some kind of like cred that you have to have or I don't know, whatever it is. I could see that, especially with uh, the list that you're talking about, how it was number one on the list. Like, oh, you have to watch this one. Sure. I mean, like I have the list for you, the movies that you have to watch, like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days and you, you know, you watch that one. So that was good. Right. And that's it. Those are the movies. Those are the important movies, right? <laughs> How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Citizen Kane, and okay. <laughs> High School Musical. Or whatever. High School Musical. <laughs> Have you ever watched that, actually? No, that's another one I've never seen. What? Okay. We've never had a conversation about this. I think we have. No, I really don't remember you saying you hadn't seen it. Well, but, but you've, you've asked me on multiple occasions about various say disney channel originals oh, and yes. you seem to be surprised every time that i tell you that i've never seen them <laughs> seen on. Like, you've never seen luck of the irish <laughs> you really haven't wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is what i'm talking about what i was today years old when i learned this okay. is the dynamic this is the podcast right here <laughs> so. oh goodness okay well uh, after this we're gonna go watch high school musical just kidding but really this is the start of something new. Okay, sorry. If we if we did these as a double feature, that might be the first time anyone's programmed <laughs> a high school musical with a with a side of Citizen Kane. That's so embarrassing. Okay. All right. So we want to get into it. We want to talk about the movie now that we've now that you've had a chance to see it and I've had a chance to see it again. It's time for Amanda Silly explains songs. the plot. Oh, sorry, okay. Amanda with a lead time of six weeks or so. Oh no. What is the story? Tell us what happened in Citizen Kane. I'm just going to say sorry in advance to everyone who's listening to this because it has been a very long time. The only thing I can remember from that far back is the beginning of The Bachelorette. Um, Just imagine, you've probably got a lot of people, I would bet, who are listening to this right now who have exactly as much information about Citizen Kane as you did when you came into it. So they're they're right on your they're right where you are or where you were a few weeks ago and they're listening to so so tell them what the movie is. <laughs> okay. So the movie is about this boy who so it starts off his parents have come into a lot of money, which I didn't really realize this at first when watching it. But um so they they set it up so that the child Kane, Charles Foster Kane, goes and lives with this banker. And so he he is being raised, I guess, in a place where he can be educated and whatnot because of their money. And um, so when he becomes 21, he has access to the money. I think, what? Five monies. 25. <laughs> Five monies. <laughs> He put his hand up. Okay, sorry, 25. I could have sworn they said 21. I mean, you know, tomato, tomato. Anyway, so he comes into money. I mean, yeah. And he fails out of a lot of colleges. He does what he wants. And then basically he is into newspapers. And so he wants to create this big newspaper that uh, tells the news to the people. And it's like for the people and everything. And so the movie is about him just doing his thing with the newspapers. And he is not liked by a lot of people, but he's loved by a lot of people. And he wants to become governor at some point. 
And I think he's just really influenced by the media and his power. And it's just... Which is interesting because he is the media. He is the media. That's right. It's the social media. And <laughs> he... He... Uh, he... Sorry, I didn't mean to stop your flow there. I apologize. Yeah, because I really had a good flow going. Um, and then he's just really consumed with power in himself. And then in the end, there's spoilers that I won't give up. But actually, the whole movie is about like, what is Rosebud about? Because it starts with him dying. I forgot about that part. Yes. It starts. That's key. I wanted to keep everybody on their in suspense. In suspense. So it starts out with him dropping a snow globe, I think. Yeah. And he says Rosebud. And so the newspaper people, <gasps> newspaper people want to figure out why he said Rosebud. What is that about? So then basically the whole film is about those newspaper people, uh, reporters, whatever, trying to figure out why he said that. So then it just goes into his whole life story. And it really does go into his entire life story. Yeah. Because following that opening, I'm just chiming in to kind of fill in some gaps here. Yeah. No, he is a child in the snow. Well, before that happens, (laughs) you have, so you have the rosebud, right? But then you have this long newsreel sequence where there's, it's like there's a voiceover and it just like goes, you know, really fast through basically his entire life and tells you everything that he did from kind of an omniscient third person perspective. Yeah. You know, it's been a few months. I forgot. mm -hmm. Yeah. But all, I mean, that's part of, that's part of the unusual structure of the film, which, you know, again, gives him, gives his death in the beginning and then gives his entire life and then goes back and follows this journalist who's trying to discover what did this last words mean? And how, what does that tell us about this person who was such a public figure? And there we have it. That's it. Is that it? Do you want me to say more? Well, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about maybe any of the women in his life. I mean, or we can we can get there as we go. We don't have to do that. And then there's women in his life. <laughs> and he has an affair. I think it made it seem like it was just like a little friend. But then he has a wife and a child, but then they died. Oh, is that a spoiler? It's whatever. Why do I say this every time? But that's one of the things about this but movie. That's the scandal that they don't like about him. Is, is that, that all of that stuff is told to us in like the first 10 or 15 minutes with that newsreel. So really, it's not a spoiler. They can't, they give you the whole shape of this man's life in aggregate before they delve into the various flashbacks told by different characters in the story. Yeah. And then Rosebud is actually... <gasps> I'm kidding. I wasn't... Guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about this. That was the one thing you're not supposed to... <laughs> Um, but I did, well, we can get in, we'll get into this later. Okay. That's what it is. Yeah. Good. I mean, that was, that was a bad, you, you said you didn't remember. So that was, uh, that was pretty good for having, there's having so much information. In there's so much. There, there really is a lot. And he I had I, a friend and I forgot just was... how much information they hit you with in a very small amount of time. Yeah. There's, and I'm like mixing up with other movies. It'll be fine though. We've got this. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that. And thanks for coming with me to see this. Now, I I really enjoyed going to see it in the theater. Can't believe you made me miss The Bachelorette. I'm kidding. <laughs> it was it was worth it. It was a lot better. I think this gets to really the core question that I wanted to ask. This is like the 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 key thing. Putting aside as much as possible whatever the pedigree of it is, you know, just coming into it fresh. 
Did you like the movie? Did you find it entertaining? I mean, I I enjoyed it because it was a new movie that I hadn't seen or not new. It was a new movie to me that I hadn't right. seen. And it kind of took me on a wild ride of, you know, his life. And so I was I was curious to know what what did Rosebud mean? And also like how did he come into all this money? What did he choose to do with it? And how did he end up alone in this big old mansion? So I I enjoyed it. I, it it held me because of the the tiny little mystery with Rosebud. But I mean it wasn't like, you know, super enjoyable, but it, it was it was enough to to hold me also because it was at the Rialto and there was a tense um, interaction with people in front of us. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do remember that when <laughs> we first started, right? Yeah, somebody yelled and it was, they were cursing at somebody. Anyway, exciting. Yeah. There are lots of older people in the theater. Lots of older people. I don't know if you noticed that. But it is a I classic. did, I expect it. It's like when we watch Breakfast at Tiffany's mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people in there who seem to know the movie really well. Yeah. They could quote it all. It was, I will say. It was flipping packed. It was really, it was very crowded. Given the fact that they were still roping off every other row. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a line out front like that for, uh, for any movie at the Rialto. Yeah, I was kind of surprised because, I mean, every time I've been there, it hasn't been that busy, but. Yeah. I've definitely been to some packed repertory showings, but this was definitely one that people wanted to come out for, and mm-hmm. no surprise. But did you enjoy the movie the first time you saw it? I did. But did you know that this was a movie that you had to see, or did you just, you know, watch it sometime because you found it? No, I knew I knew what I was watching, and I think that at this time, and this is going to show me for well, I, I, you know, for the budding cinephile that I was. Rose budding. Uh, okay. <laughs> I at this point was trying to watch the entire IMDb top two fifty, but I was trying to watch it in chronological order. So how I many had, did you watch? I got up through I think maybe about the late sixties before oh. I before I so I quit. So I I started with the nineteen twenty one with Chaplin's The Kid, silent movie. And I worked my way up, and and Citizen Kane is 1941. There weren't that many older movies on the list, so because mm-hmm. it, it's you know, I mean, it's not the most prestigious list of people. It was better back in 2010 than it is now, but uh, so it wasn't too long before I made it up to 1941 and hit Citizen Kane. So uh, I, mean, I had an idea of the uh, you know the movie's kind of cachet mm-hmm. when I was when I was watching it, and I watched it three times in one weekend. What? Why three times? Well, because so I, I think I had I had got it from Netflix back with the de- the disc shipping. Oh yeah, yeah. And I watched it myself first, mm-hmm. and then I thought this was a movie that my parents and I could both enjoy. Mm-hmm. So I watched it with them. Did I, they like it? I think so. And then I watched it a third time with the Roger Ebert commentary because he did a commentary for one of the discs. I don't remember which what, uh, version of it, but um, which that's a super. A cool way if you're interested to kind of learn about some of the things that some of the reasons that it's considered to be a great movie. If you've got somebody who's really well learned about those things, kind of guiding you through as you're watching, yeah, that the movie. that would be neat. Like the uh, what you told me about the 
the visual, the the shots. Ebert did a thing for quite some time called, uh, I, I'm going to butcher it. Uh, it was like Interruptus or basically what it was. He would watch a movie and I think Citizen Kane was one of the ones that he did with a group of people, like a, like a class. And at any point people could say, stop. And he would just stop the movie on whatever frame it was. And they would talk about what was happening in the movie and what the frame conveyed and what was, what information was being told to us by the composition, by the lighting, that sort of thing. Oh, cool. Uh, But I did like the movie. And I think really this is what I'm getting at because this is one of the things that is sometimes challenging when you are talking to folks who don't have a lot of exposure to older movies or maybe have a maybe have some trepidation about watching things that are in black and white, things that think that things made before 1990 or, or 1970 are going to be just boring and mm-hmm. slow. And so that's one of the things that I most enjoy trying to dispel because there's really just such a wealth of films from before that period that I think are, are really entertaining uh, as well, not just like not just quote unquote important, but have uh, you know a lot to offer, uh, just on you know uh, on a on a more like kind of narrative level. And so I think that's one of the things I was trying to do in the opening was contrast this with some of those movies that I think are in some ways more academic exercises mm-hmm. in how movies came to be. Uh, Kane is important in that trajectory, but my opinion of it is it's a very kind of fast moving rise and fall story. It's a recognizable shape of a drama. I think it has good characters. I think it has good acting. I think it has good makeup. I think the editing is really interesting. And so to me, I say, I think this is a movie that this is a classic that almost anyone can enjoy. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know some of the cinematography things and innovations that we're going to talk about. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I enjoyed it even though I didn't know a lot of things about it before. I mean, you telling me what to kind of look for with the cinematography, that was helpful. And that made me enjoy it more because while I was watching it, I remembered it, but I don't exactly remember all the things now. Well, let's go there. So we're talking about, obviously, uh, Kane is known for its innovative cinematography. What if any shots, techniques, any kind of formal aspects did you notice while you were watching the film, if you can remember? I remember, well, (laughs) I remember the opening scene with him in the background through the window playing in the snow and then his parents and the banker Mm -hmm. in the foreground. Don't know what that's called, but I'm sure you know. That's called deep focus. Deep focus. And that's one of the things that, and here's... It's a little bit tricky to talk about this because there is so much kind of history and and journalism centered around this movie. And so if you're interested, this is out there. You can do some reading even on Wikipedia, uh, on something called uh, Film Site. Uh, Tim Dirks has has something he writes about this. Again, the Roger Ebert commentary is very good. There's a lot of things you can do to, to, to find out about the history of Kane. I'm not going to try to summarize them all here. But uh, most of the techniques that were used in Kane had been used at some point before. They were not all brand new, but they had not been all combined and used in uh, 
in, in the way that they were here. So it, it kind of, in a lot of ways, was ground zero for the popularization uh, of some of these techniques and showing how they could be put to, uh, to use. Um, and so Greg Toland was the cinematographer on Citizen Kane. And one of the things that he did quite a lot in the movie and which are, is noticeable is what's called deep focus. And this is simply that there are compositions in which the foreground and the background are in perfect focus. They're both equally clear. Uh, and so typically with most lenses, what you will get is that, and you probably notice this a lot without even realizing it, that a lot of times you have a shot where maybe only the foreground is in focus and the back is blurred, or maybe only the the background is in focus and the and what's closer to the camera is blurred. And a lot of times you have what's called a rack focus where within the same shot, the cinematographer will shift what thing is in focus. And you can see this you can see this all the time. I saw it just the other day when you were watching, I think it was Never Have I Ever. Uh, they they uh, were shifting from the person in front of the fridge to the person in the back or whatever. Mm, and they do mm-hmm. this to kind of just show either, you know, who they want to focus on or, you know, where the dramatic tension is in the scene. There's all kinds of reasons to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toland and, and Wells in this use a lot of deep focus and that it gives you some pretty striking compositions and one of the ways that it does that in that scene you were just talking about where he's playing in the snow, which we just watched prior mm-hmm. to, to starting this, uh, is that you you can have multiple, almost multiple stages where different dramas are playing out simultaneously. And you get all of that in the same shot. So in that famous scene where his parents are discussing his fate, <laughs> you see Kane outside, oblivious, mm-hmm. playing in the snow, not knowing that his entire future is being decided in this in that room, uh, and you know the last vestiges of childhood are playing out on mm-hmm. that stage. And then in the foreground, you have Agnes Moorhead playing his mother with Mr. Thatcher, and they're signing his life away, and she's you know steely and cold, resigned to doing this. And then in you can also have a middle kind of focal point where the father is standing a little Mm -hmm. bit further away in like a medium uh, and he's protesting, you know, what's going on. So you have a number of these compositions throughout Citizen Kane. Uh, You have another one very closely after that in the restaurant where I want to say it's maybe his first wife is, uh, is sitting there getting uh, drinking. And then you have the person in the phone booth, but you see her in the background you have anyway. You have a number of these, and yeah. some of them were done using composites, where you actually shot the background at a separate time and then put it together. So that's that's one of the things for which the movie is known. That and then also when we were talking about the shots from where you could see the ceiling, mm-hmm. and it's uh, funny that we watched this before going to our California trip, and then we went on the Warner Brothers tour. Because yeah. we got to see the sets uh, for different uh, TV shows like Gilmore Girls or Pretty Little Liars, which I have not seen. But apparently I need to watch it. I heard a lot about both of those shows on <laughs> so the tour. Much. But they created the sets without the ceilings. Or it, it just it was kind of cool to think about them filming that and actually having ceilings. Because it was like, oh, it's kind of just like a shell of a house. Like, it doesn't have all the basic things that a house would have. And so just thinking about everything that goes into the, you know, makings of these movies is really incredible. No, it's a lot, right? It, mm-hmm. 
And the development of technology nowadays, microphones are very small, cameras can be very small, and it's much easier to sometimes shoot in more realistic environments. At this time, you know, we're talking about the 30s, basically leading up to this, Hollywood movies were shot on sound stages and like some of the ones that we saw at Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And you didn't often see the ceiling of the room in a scene because it wasn't there. And what was up there were boom microphones capturing sound, were lighting, you know, apparatus. Like, look at all the lights in that Ellen studio that we saw. Oh, man, you know? so many lights. And so the fact that Kane is showing all these ceilings, and again, probably not the first movie to ever do it, but it does it does it consistently. And, you know, he wants to put the camera low to kind of get this the sense of the the power of these characters kind of looming over them. Uh, at one point, they even, as I understand, put the camera like down in the floor and shot up so they could get, you know, the most dramatic low angle shot. So that necessitated doing things differently. Some of the ceilings that we see are actually fabric so that the there's still a, a, a mic or lighting over top of it. But... There's just a lot of innovations. And one of the things that people talk about so much with this is that the unusual circumstances of its creation, which is that Orson Welles was known from radio because he had done the kind of infamous War of the Worlds reenactment Mm -hmm. that a lot of people thought was actually an alien invasion or some kind of other catastrophe. They thought that the... Radio was wait what? So I don't yeah, know anything about this? Uh, so Orson Welles was involved in doing a a radio broadcast of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, oh. and he did it in such a way that it sounded like it was like currently happening, mm-hmm. and you know it, that uh, and so you know a lot of people were freaked out. They thought that you know something was was going down, uh, and and he was involved as you saw in the trailer that we watched with the what's called the Mercury Theater. He was more of a theater guy and a radio guy. He had never made a movie, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, RKO Pictures decided that they're going to let him do a movie. They gave him full creative control. They let him use, and he brought in a cast of unknown actors from the theater. Most of them had never been in a movie before. He had never made a movie before. He was 25 years old. Oh, wow. Did not realize that. And just, you know, didn't really know what he was doing, but but came in and, you know, without any of that baggage, without studio oversight, created something that was so just unique and dynamic and was the was the product of people who thought about things in a different way than the Hollywood establishment. And that's the kind of thing that, very rarely happens. Wow, I didn't realize that. 25. Woof. Wonderkind. And he, you know, wrote it, directed it. Well, co-wrote it, right? We talked about Oh, yeah, because Mank. Because Mank. Did, do you think that your viewing of Mank on this had any impact in the way you viewed the movie as you were watching it? <laughs> I think, for me, the thing that I remembered the most about Mank was... The celebrity or the the singer, so I made a safe read, just because I feel like there was a lot of drama with that, and so I was trying to pay attention to like when is she gonna come into the scene, and um, yeah, I I was just trying to piece together like 
why did he write this about him? And I mean, it I'm I'm glad I'm glad I watched it, but um so it it helped me to stay invested in the film after watching Mank. I don't think that I would have been as invested if I didn't watch Mank before. Is that because you were trying to see how they connected? Yeah. I, I just I wanted to know who Citizen Kane was and also why why was it Citizen Kane? But it was because he was involved in what, like trying to be governor and all of that. He's involved in politics. Politics, yeah. He's involved in the public life, right? Which is media, yeah. Because first he's maybe in some sense telling people what to think via mm-hmm. the media. Mm-hmm. And then you know, attempting to run for governor. I think it was governor. Yeah, it was governor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think maybe just kind of being in the in the public eye. Was it just me or did you feel like in Mank, it, it felt like it was a, there's a lot on the singer, like, oh, didn't want to offend her and all of that. Or was that just a, a portion of it? No, it definitely was. It just felt like that was a lot. And so I was like, She what? was an important character in, in Mank for sure. But then it didn't feel like she was that much in the actual movie. You didn't think so? Well, maybe the second half. Well, yeah, definitely the second half. But it was interesting to see how he was forcing her to sing in the opera, you know, building whatever that he created for her. Right. That rubbed me the wrong way because she basically tried to kill herself because she was like, this is too much. Yeah. So that was kind of entertaining, though. I mean, not entertaining, but in in a dramatic way where you're interested in, you know, that sort of drama that went down. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What you thought about the the Susan Alexander of it all? I mean, I liked I liked that part of the story because it was crazy. Like, why would you force this woman to sing who sucks at singing? <laughs> Which <laughs> Pay for has lessons. always bugged me. Because I feel like she's not that bad of a singer. Oh, from what what in the movie? Yeah, I mean she wasn't great. She but they 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 portray her as not great, but I feel like she's pretty good. I don't know. <laughs> like, but in like real life, or you're saying just in the movie? In the movie, like I didn't feel like she was terrible at all. I mean, she was she was okay, but like not somebody that I would want to go see and listen to. Which I understand that they're get that's what they're getting at, and especially. Especially with the the music um, lessons that she received when he was clearly trying to be like, hit this note. And then she just was not doing it. That mm-hmm. That's when it's like, oh, wow, she's uh, she's not that great. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's so sad, though, because she clearly knows that she's not the greatest. And then she wants to stop. But he's like, oh, God. What did you think of the montage? With his first wife, there's a series of breakfasts that are given to us over that that span years of their marriage. And in I maybe we need to go rewatch that scene, mm-hmm. but where they are first, like he's kind of maybe there's kind of, he's kind of, you know, doting on her, although she's maybe a little bit jealous of how much time he's spending at the newspaper. Yeah, yeah, because he's not really present. And then by the end of it, they're separated by a large table. She's reading a rival newspaper. They're snapping at each other, you know. I thought that was a really good montage. I mean, it showed the, you know, the progression of the separation between them. 
which I liked how they did it in a montage and not just like a long scene. I don't know. I, I guess I don't know how else you could have done that without a montage, right? Well, that's the power of editing, right? Is that you can press a lot of time into a small space. Mm-hmm. The other thing that Kane is known for is the use of a nonlinear structure rather than simply telling the story from beginning to end. Yeah, that was a little confusing for me because I, I have to pay attention. So that's why, I guess that's why I said that Mank, it was helpful watching Mank at first so I could pay a little bit more attention because it was hard. Like, okay, he died and then he was a kid and then what happened? You know. Well, th- because then we follow the reporter mm-hmm. who interviews different people who knew him and each person tells a part of his life. And so we get their perspective and then we go on to the next person and we get their perspective. And so we kind of go over the life of Cain over and over and get different shades of it, mm-hmm. which again is not something that was now we have all kinds of like linear storytelling. Nonlinear storytelling is very popular and popularized maybe in modern times by, well, I guess ultimately by, in some ways by Rashomon, but, you know, by Pulp Fiction, by Memento, the, the films of Christopher Nolan. Uh, but, you know, at this point, it was not something that was very common. Mm-hmm. You really never get the view of Kane himself. No. Uh-uh, he's, all- he's in a lot of the movie. But he's never the subjective, like, audience viewpoint. You get a lot of people looking at him and talking about him. That's true. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, I I wonder if we did have uh, his viewpoint or, you know, him speaking from himself, that if I would have liked him more. Because after watching it, I was like, oh, like, he's kind of annoying, like, he seems to take advantage of people or not take advantage, but like know that he is powerful and he just doesn't care about people around him. And so I'm like, I, I'm not a fan of this guy. Like he, he just thinks a lot of himself and doesn't care who uh, falls to the wayside, you know, as he's striving towards his goal. Mm-hmm. Did you find that that was his character more or less from the start or did there was more of a progression? No, it was definitely a progression. I mean, I know it didn't show much of him as a child, but it felt like as a child he he wanted his mom and dad to come play with him or give him attention, you know, like any child wants. And then it's like he was forced to leave with this banker man and he seemed kind of like carefree and fun when he was younger. Like he was enthusiastic and he was excited about starting the newspaper. And then I don't know, his, it, it just changed after that. So yeah. One of the things that is emblematic of that is the declaration of principles that he gives at the beginning of his ah. tenure with the newspaper. He has the guy take down the principles and then you know, later, while he's in the midst of trying to force Susan Alexander into another tour, uh, what tears up those same principles. Mm. The the shape of this story, not the necessarily the nonlinear nature of it, but the the drama itself, if you were to just take his life as a whole, is familiar. The rise and fall story is something that has been done not just in movies, 
but in novels and in plays for a long time. And obviously, Kane as a film is is enormously influential. I recently finished reading the book Easy Riders Raising Bulls, which is a a well-known kind of chronicling of a lot of the things that happened during the 70s in the movie world. Uh, it talks about a lot of the directors and who you know were able to make films uh, either outside of or in spite of the crumbling studio system at the time. So many of those people, and we're talking about we're talking about Spielberg, we're talking about you know Lucas, Scorsese, Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, Dennis Hopper, Warren Beatty. I mean, just uh, you know, a ton of people. So many of them said. I saw Citizen Kane and it made me want to become a filmmaker. Like the, so the, in, on that way, even like the, the influence of this can hardly be overstated. But, and I think maybe part of that was the fact that you have Kane as this, or not Kane, see, I'm, I'm conflating the two. <laughs> Wells as this wonder kind, this young guy who comes in and makes something that's totally on his own, totally a unique artistic statement. Were there any other movies that you were reminded of while you were watching this, things that, you know, you thought it maybe was similar to in some way. Do you at least agree that the rise and fall narrative is something that we've seen commonly in TV and film? Yeah, for sure. I just. And if so, what do you think is, what do you think is compelling to us about that narrative and that, that story that we keep telling it? I don't know. Do you, do you think people are trying to warn us that it's not as good as, we all think it's going to be like, be careful on the path to success because it's like a, a tricky road where you can easily stumble. And uh, if, if you don't stay true to your, to your values and beliefs and, you know, what you really believe in, like, I mean, people who become famous or stuff like that, like you easily become what the media wants you to be or what, whoever's in charge wants you to be so like either it's a warning or we just love to see people uh fail <laughs> i don't know yeah no it's interesting though isn't it yeah because i think it's such a common it's a common trajectory and i there's obviously something that's in it and so yeah there's the warning there's the cautionary tale there is the maybe in some ways it's cathartic for us to see someone who is powerful lose that power maybe because we are in some way jealous of the people who have wealth and power and yeah and we're like they they well i mean watching it's like oh well his life didn't have any meaning because in the end he died and he was alone and he had a lot of material items that in the end nobody wanted they just they burned them they you know got rid of them they were meaningless they were priceless you know like He had all those statues that he collected. Yeah, what in the world? And who wants what did this right? What did the statues mean? And what was the thing that had significance? So let's quickly get into spoiler talk. Okay. Spoiler alert. I don't think I need to say this, but if you haven't seen Citizen Kane and you're interested in movies as a medium, you should probably check it out at some point. Uh it was, you know, nominated for nine Oscars, one only one. For its screenplay, interestingly enough, it is currently available. I uh, Last time I looked at this, it was available on HBO Max. Also, you can find a Blu-ray and a DVD. 
So we are going to talk a little bit about the ending of the movie. If you don't want to hear about it, skip ahead a little bit. So Amanda, I want to ask you, were you aware of the meaning of Rosebud before you watched the movie? No, I was not. I don't even think I knew that it was a thing. Were you invested in the mystery of its significance? As the movie unfolded, were you were you interested in finding out what Rosebud was? Yeah, for sure. Because I'm like, why would you say Rosebud and then drop a snow globe? Like, <laughs> I want to know. Because like the only person that drops a snow globe while they're in bed is the girl from Snow Day. And she wants it to snow. <laughs> Does he want Rosebud? That's a to better fall- double feature than High School Musical. Yeah. Snow Day and Citizen Kane. I mean, a, a snow globe double feature. Anything can happen on a snow day, hell. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, but it kept me invested. I was like, what? Because I don't know. I was like, is it a woman? And then we found out, you know, it's not a woman. What What did you think it was when you first watched the movie? Or did you look it up? I had it spoiled for me before I ever watched <gasps> it. Who did it? It's kind of like Soylent Green. It's like most people know what that is, you know. But who told you? Or you just knew? I probably just read it online. I'm glad I didn't look it up. I mean, I don't, I don't think I intentionally looked it up. I think it's probably, just, you know, read it at some point. And it comes up, you know, because it's kind of like people saying, oh, you know, who Luke's father is in The Empire Strikes Back. It's one of those things that's so kinda common. Kind of like when you start think. to watch uh, Grey's Anatomy, but you already learned that Derek Shepard dies. Spoiler! Just kidding. Everybody knows about Grey's Anatomy because like. There it is. Oops. Did I just spoil everything? I'm so sorry. I did. I did what happened to me before Grey's Anatomy and I didn't like it. Oh. I can go back and bleep it out. No, don't. That's funny. <laughs> um, Prim is like, how could you? But that's why I was, I was because I, I didn't go into it totally fresh. I just wanted to know if it actually was something that uh, the, you know, an audience cared about without, were you following that or were you just I mean, following? through the whole movie, I wasn't like, I need to know what Rosebud is. But that was one thing. It's like in the end, okay, like, what was it? Are you guys going to tell us what it is? What is it? So. It ended up being the name of the sled in the right. beginning. It was his sled. It was it was the sled when he was a child with his parents still. Again, representing that last time of innocence, that last time of, you know, freedom, basically from all the things uh, in his life. Yeah. In his, uh, you know, innocence, simplicity. But it, it was a it was a pretty cool picture. I, I liked at the end that the sled was burning and then it kind of just made me think like it's just I mean kind of like his legacy or like he it's just it's nothing like it's just burning like I mean okay not really his legacy because everybody knows about him but it was just sad burned away and the people who were looking through this vast collection of things that he amassed during his life would have never known necessarily which things were significant on that level. Because to them, it's going to be the things that they can resell and make some cash. Mm-hmm. The sled wasn't worth anything to them. But the whole, and, and they say the whole thing, you know, at the end, he's kind of like, if we know what Rosebud is, would it really explain anything? You know, is, could one word possibly explain a man's life? And, so in some way, there's, you know, uh, Rosebud doesn't hold all of that. Right? Just that you can't. I think it holds his regrets. 
or like regrets, but like <laughs> he didn't really have a choice though. It's like maybe, you know, he wished that his life had gone differently and he thought back to the first time that he wasn't being controlled by somebody else. And then, I mean, really, and that's the line he says later, if I, if I hadn't been very rich, I might've been a great man. Can't buy me love. What were some of your favorite performances? Just to quickly outline the cast, you've got Wells playing Charles Foster Kane. Mm -hmm. You've got Dorothy Cummingor playing Susan Alexander. Joseph Cotton is his right-hand man, Jedediah Leland, who we later see as an old guy in the the nursing home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ruth Warwick plays his first wife, Emily Morton. Ray Collins is Geddes, who is the rival politician who blackmails him to get him out of the race. Yes. And Everett Sloan is Mr. Bernstein, the kind of erratic, I guess, mm. executive mm-hmm. who is more taken by Kane's personality than Leland, who begins to see through him. So did any of those, uh, oh, and also Agnes Moorhead as his mother. There's a few others, but those are kind of the main cast uh, in terms of the uh, any performances that stood out to you. I liked his buddy, uh, Leland. Wait, yeah, Leland, Jedediah. Mm-hmm. I liked that performance. I thought he did a good job, and he was fun. And I especially liked when he was in the nursing home or wherever. Like That was hilarious because I was like, I can relate. I mean, not me, but my <laughs> patient. He was like, nurse. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. what what about you? No, I, I love Cotton in this. And it, again, so this is his first role. He goes on to become a major movie star. He stars in The Third Man, also across from Orson Welles. He stars mm-hmm. in Shadow of a Doubt. And then, of course, you can't ignore Welles himself. The very... Uh, he has such such presence. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it makes sense that he was a radio star before he was a movie star because he's got that voice, that inimitable yeah. voice that I always think of the impression that was done of him for Pinky and the Brain. Wait, what? The fact that the guy who plays the brain on Pinky and the Brain is basically doing an Orson Welles impression. Like the whole time as that character brain? Yeah, pretty much the voice of brain is like his caricature of Orson Welles. Wow, did not know that. A few other things, Alex, maybe just to answer the question that I asked you earlier that it makes me think of. Uh, what I was thinking about a lot while I was watching it this time was A Face in the Crowd. Oh, yes. Which we recently watched. I liked that. Another one. rise and fall story mm-hmm. of a powerful media mogul. I think mm-hmm. like, there's a lot that's in common between yeah, the two of those. That that for sure. I forgot about that one. Another person who, Andy Griffith, in that movie, mm-hmm. also, even though he was acquiring power, he ultimately wanted the love of the public. He wanted people to love him. He wanted the women in his life to love him. Mm-hmm. And when they left him, that was when his empire began to crumble. And we also hear a similar thing about Cain, that he really just wanted people to you know, love and admire him. It's like people that he wasn't close to, though, like just people. That was yeah, the same people. Thing for, yeah. And he had a harder time with his individual relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a... If there's a, there's, a, there's a step of remove where mm-hmm. you want, you know, the adoration of the public. Mm-hmm. Maybe, again, the title of citizen applies in some way there. The other thing that I thought of, and this is a really weird 
this is a really weird connection. Because what's known as sometimes as the Citizen Kane of bad movies, The Room, starring Tommy Wiseau, features another very stilted scene of a person destroying a room in a rage. Did you... What did you think of that scene where he like destroys her bedroom after she decides to leave him? My goodness. All I could think of was, who's going to clean this mess up? (laughs) Why are you doing this? This is your home. Yeah. I don't, I don't like when people mess up. Like it's like those, those scenes like in Ferris Bueller when they wreck the car and yeah. I know you have a big grudge against that scene. Just stuff like that. Like when, when people ruin property or the, i'm just oh and like was was there one in parasite i feel like there was or maybe they were just under the table that well they were like drinking and eating and like leaving their stuff all over yes, the room that i i don't like when there's chaos and it's like you have to clean this up or even just like this is your own place <laughs> who's gonna do th-? anyway yeah it makes me uh kind of on edge not but it, but this time watching it it was pretty humorous because i was just like and it felt like it was a tiny room too. Did it, it not? Did feel, it felt small. It was like a little cave. What, what's funny to me is because it's it's Wells in old man makeup. He's a twenty five <laughs> year old guy wearing this old man makeup. He's like I was at, he's holding himself in a stiff way to suggest an older man. Mm-hmm. And but he's just like because he's so stiff, like he him knocking the things off the wall just seems really. It's kind of funny to me. It, it was funny. I, and I'm sure if I were to go look on YouTube, somebody has done a supercut of scenes in movies where people destroy rooms. And I, oh. I'm going to go, I need to go find that. And if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes because <laughs> that's very interesting to me. Anyway, sorry, back to rating. Oh, yeah, rating. What would you give Citizen Kane? Let's just say sleds for, for simplicity. Okay, we'll do sleds. What would you give simplicity? I just said simplicity. <laughs> What would you give Citizen Kane out of five sleds? I'll give it. I'll give it two and a half sleds because like you said, it's like a must watch. It's not boring, but maybe because of how fast paced it is for me, I would just give it two and a half. Okay. I think I did this wrong. Mm. It shouldn't have been sleds. You know what it should have been? What? It should have been. It should what? have been well. Okay, no, no. I just no, sorry. The Tell one thing. Us. No, the one scene I wanted to mention that I didn't mention was the fact that it also has a a really great jump scare when, for <laughs> no particular reason, in between scenes, a bird shows up on the screen and squawks so loud <laughs> it's piercing. That was that's right. I don't I, even know what kind of a bird that is. is that a I cockatoo? Don't, is I it? I don't a, even remember. But that was so funny, man. Oh. Oh, that was okay. So scratch that. Cockatoos, two and a half cockatoos. Okay, that's 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 a little bit less than I expected. Is it? But it's fine. I, I mean, I want you to be honest. I'm just. Uh, I really, so you wonder, really kind of. So that's basically like half and half. You're like it's it's kind of good. It's kind of bad. You weren't really sure. But I also wonder if like directly after the movie, like how many cockatoos I would have given it. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I I don't know. I I think I'm just, I'm going halfway because like I didn't not enjoy it. No, no, that's fine. I, you know, it's, uh, it's not doing a whole lot to support my hypothesis that, uh, you know, being a really accessible classic that's, uh, has a lot of dramatic thrust, but that's, that's, 
I want you to be, I want you to tell me how you really felt. No, but when you were talking about black and white movies and how, you know, people shouldn't write them off. I absolutely agree because before being married to you, I was not into black and white movies and just like, I was like, oh, old movies, whatever. Or even movies with subtitles for that matter. And mm, now, yeah, another one. now if there's a movie that is black and white or has subtitles, I'm totally down for it. Like I've completely changed my, um, my point of view. Just like I, I, uh, yeah, I enjoy I mean, I really, I really liked All About Eve. I mean, I think this one was just like, like I said, it was kind of fast paced. Um, <laughs> maybe there wasn't as much drama or like love stories like I like, but, um, you know. That's true. It takes the shape of a little bit more of a survey. You don't really get an audience insert character. So there's some of those things so, that like, could be. I think there wasn't a whole lot of like, they, they didn't make me love any characters a whole lot. And, yeah. and I think that's what I really like about some movies is like, they introduce a character. They, it's like I form a relationship with them. Um, you know, I'm invested in that character. And for this movie, it's like, hey, this is a story about a guy. Some people, a lot of people don't like him. Some people like him. And it's like they weren't doing a whole lot for me with making me like him. So I sure. think for me, that's why I had to give it two and a half copies. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, even in that trailer that we just watched, mm-hmm. I think we get the idea that Wells is trying to present Kane to us as a complex character, not necessarily as a sympathetic character, uh, and that he doesn't necessarily think that you need to like him. And well, and partly because let's also remember this was in some ways a an analog for William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. and Hearst tried his darndest to prevent this movie from ever being seen. Really, and it's part of the reason why it didn't become a big hit and it was only in subsequent decades that film scholarship kind of resurrected it and championed it for the you know masterpiece that they thought that it was wow and because so indeed kane is not a hero he is in large in a large ways a he's a tragic figure but he is you know he did a lot of stuff that uh, nobody would be proud of do you think it really was william randolph hearst well, it was Hearst. It wasn't just Hearst. It was also Joseph Pulitzer. There was a number of folks who were inspirations for the character. And again, there's go and do the reading on this for those who are listening, mm-hmm. because you, if you start to look at the life of William Randolph Hearst and some of these other guys, not only is it eerily similar to the cane in the film, some there's even a few things that are like quotes from some of these people. So, like, he didn't want it to go out because. He knew that it would be negative for him. Wells knew he was kicking the hornet's nest. He was he was making a statement and people mm. knew that it, it was unmistakable. Mm. Also, uh, sad news, but we tried to go see the Hearst Castle in California, but it was closed. So I also really wanted to see that, especially after watching this movie, you know? So uh, this and this this uh, this says the real life Hearst once said to a staffer, you provide the pictures and I'll provide the war. That quote was used in Citizen Kane where the young Kane basically is saying he's going to, he's going to sensationalize the mm-hmm. truth in order to, so, you know, he's, he's, he's drumming up drama to sell papers. 
So this was in a large ways a, a critique of some of the way that these uh, businesses were being run. I think another reason why I didn't like him is because the man who was supposedly like his best friend, he kind of betrayed him. And that that really that rubs me the wrong way because I'm all about some loyalty. So I was like, if you like even screw over your best friend and he has nothing really good to say about you, like I don't think a lot of you. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's absolutely fair. Yeah. Okay. You tell me what you think about the character and then tell me your cockatoos. That's weird. <laughs> I should have kept it with sleds. What was I thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? It's just that the cockatoo popped into my head and said, <laughs> It popped into your head like it popped into the like screen. Like it popped out of the screen. <laughs> I do find him sympathetic on some level. And I, I think partially because he begins as someone who has ideals and he slowly finds that those ideals are difficult to maintain, especially in the face of, you know, again, money and power, but not just money and power, but also, you know, he probably would have won the governorship if not for his rival Gettys who had this thing uh, to blackmail him with. Mm -hmm. We do well to look at the characters that we don't find appealing and see what of ourselves is in them. Mm. And that's where the whole cautionary tale comes in. It's easy to look at someone who treats someone poorly or who abuses money or power and say, wow, they're such a jerk and they're such a terrible person. It's harder to say, what are my values and if if the same pressures were applied to me what is what is in me that might cause me to respond that way you know yeah so i don't necessarily think that i'm i find him a sympathetic character per se but there's certainly things about him that i think are relatable and that bring out common human foibles so how many cockatoos i'll give it uh Four and a half. Wow. I should probably give That's it the straight five, even more so than my previous watches after 10 years had passed. Uh, I found it to be just watches. a really impressive production. I was impressed by, you mentioned it, the the speed with which it moves. Mm-hmm. It's really a freight train. It's not, uh, like you said, there's no time for it to be boring because there's so much packed in. Mm-hmm. The uh, kind of the innovative nature of it, um, all of the the shots, the kind of, chiaroscuro black and white contrast the the clarity of it all of the performances you know uh i i really you know, I, this is obviously not saying anything new but uh yeah i i thought it was quite uh quite sensational i'm sure if if i watched it a few times i would like it with each viewing like yeah i could see that i mean i think for me the first time watching i'm like what's going on. But then after you know exactly what's going on, you can enjoy it. So I can see that. So what's on your nightstand? Yes. Time to look at our nightstand. What are other things that we have been watching or reading that may not be necessarily films, although they can be. 
Uh, did you want me to, you want, you're asking me, you want me to go first? All right. So we just talked about a classic masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about something that I just saw from another era. And if you remember a couple of episodes ago, or maybe it might even just been last episode, darn if I know it's been so long. I recently talked about watching the 1950s Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Well, I have now caught up with the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers directed by Philip Kaufman and starring Donald Sutherland. And I think this is a horror masterpiece. And I can't believe I've never seen it until now. Uh, I was so impressed from the very first shot of this thing. It absolutely captured my imagination. Uh, And I mean, you know, the the first one was good. Like it was kind of a, you know, kind of campy, like 1950s sci-fi, a little bit of paranoia sort of thing. But this took it to a whole new level. Like I said, it's got Donald Sutherland. It's got a young Jeff Goldblum. What? In You're just of, now telling me this. Jeff Goldblum. Jeffy. Yeah, it, it's got Jeff. I feel like Kaufman, when he was directing this, was absolutely allergic to conventional setups. There's just so many creative camera moves, choices, the framing the it's a San Francisco movie, which is kind of fun. We just got back from San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, and like everything about the premise of this kind of goofy, I admit, sci-fi premise. Oh, 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 uh, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy is in it as a psychologist, uh, absolutely amped up to 11. And I, I, I think I almost on the strength of this might have to rethink my general distaste for remakes because if you look at some of the remakes that are, especially in the horror space, The Fly, The Thing, mm-hmm. and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like I feel like on that strength alone, I have to say, I would almost have to just welcome any remake because what if it was as good as these movies are? Like I really think it's it stands among, it's like, you know, you've got The Shining, you've got Alien, you've got, you've got Psycho, Jobs, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Body Snatchers 78. It's that good. I just heard that they're coming out with a 4K like UHD uh, Blu-ray on this. So be on the lookout for that. If you've never checked this out and if you're a fan, especially if you're a fan of films of the era, like the kind of gritty 70s, like paranoia type of film uh, and if or, or, you know, any kind of sci-fi type of thing, then I would definitely check this out because uh, it's one of the great ones. It's I, I watched it on Amazon Prime, I think. So it's available widely. Did you watch it in the morning before work? I'm kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but I did watch it in a couple of pieces. I didn't I didn't manage to get it all in one go. Okay, nice. And it still impressed me, so that's good. <laughs> all right, Amanda, what about you? What's on my my nightstand? Um, so I as maybe uh people know, I like to watch TV shows and um so a show that I watched actually it came out last year. Yeah, and 2020. It's called Never Have I Ever. Hopefully, um, people who are listening have watched it. If you haven't, you should go watch it right now. Love it. It's about this <laughs> this teenage girl. She's Indian, and um, she. I guess I won't give stuff away. It's just it's <laughs> oh, man. I'm so bad at this. But anyway, um, it's well, maybe I should ask this. What do you like about it? Everything. I love everything about it. But the Second season just dropped uh, a week or so ago. And as soon as I saw it on Netflix, say new episodes, I was like, oh my goodness, I binged it in, 
I think a night and a half. Yeah. I think you're at band practice. Yeah. At band practice. Um, How many episodes in the season? Well, there's 10. It's yeah. like in the episodes are maybe like 30 minutes or less. Yeah. 30 minutes or less. Um, anyway, it stars. I'm going to ruin her name. Um, Matrei Ramakrishnan. Krishnan. Um, and her name. What? I can't. I can't say it. Um, like a difficult name. Her name. <laughs> Her name is De- Davy, and um, and then Darren Barnett is Paxton Hall Yoshida. Um, anyway, so she has um, you know, her crush as a teenager, and it's just her trying to figure out how to live this teenage life and um, deal with things like the loss of people in her life. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to give things away, but because if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. But I really like it because. It feels kind of realistic. And I like how they use um, Davy having, she has a counselor in it. And it, it just, I like how they kind of like normalize that or not normalize. Well, yeah. And um, like her going to therapy. Yeah. Or- yeah. It's really cool. And I mean, cause it's, it's necessary. She needs it. And just her relationship with her mom and um, her friends. And she seems to make a lot of mistakes like, <laughs> I don't know how she does this, but she kind of gets on. She kind of, like, betrays people. I don't know. It, things happen. What, you mean like Kane? Exactly. No, but she doesn't mean to because she loves her friends. It's just she gets kind of caught up in things. Anyway, it's really funny. It's, like, laugh out loud funny. And um, watch it. I feel like I don't want to give things away because I just want everyone I don't to, to give things away. But I mean, laugh out loud, funny is high praise. I feel like a lot of comedies aren't that. It is like, and I, I love her outfits also because, you know, 90s trends are in and I just feel like her outfits are on point and she just kind of says what she feels and <laughs> there's just chaos around her because of her. So. There's not the kind of chaos that comes from tearing up your room or wrecking your dad's car, right? Because you don't like that kind of chaos. No, there's not. It's it's kind of relational chaos. Yeah, it's relational chaos. That's what we'll call it. Okay. So yeah, love Never it. Never have I ever. Never have I Netflix. ever on Netflix. Season two. I mean, I also started watching Julie and the Phantoms, but like. I was about to ask you if Davey had a had a ghost that was talking to her, but I think that's the wrong show. Uh, she kind of does, but, um, spoiler alert. Just kidding. Not kidding. <laughs> How dare you say that? <laughs> <laughs> I've never watched the show. Not really a ghost, but. We've talked a little bit about what might be coming up next. Did you want to, you want to give any kind of tease about that or any movies that are on the, on the list that you need me to see? Cause this was, this was a Dan movie. Right. Yeah. So oh, what's, what's the next Amanda movie? I don't know. Cause I feel like we keep talking about, mm, wait, what do, do you have one in your, I have one in my mind. Is it, is it, she's the man? It wasn't, but it could be. What it, what's the one you're thinking of? I was thinking of the music man. Oh, we should do that. We talked one. about that at Warner as well. All right. This is, this is what's going to happen. The music man, the music man and seven brides for seven brothers, which I have seen. Yeah. Because we're going to do a comparison and you guys will just have to find out why it's important that we will be doing this comparison. Okay, now you've piqued my interest. Mm. Well, thank you guys for listening. 
Thanks for listening. As always, if you have suggestions, if you have questions, if you have any kind of feedback, please either email us, podcast at scenesfromamarriage.com. Slide into our DMs. Slide into our DMs. We're on Instagram at scenesfromamarriage. Invite your friends. Well, until next time, it's been Dan and Amanda doing podcasts.